that's cheap and out of control doesn't fade from the mind the way so many assembly line thrillers do. Its images lodge in the memory. To paraphrase the old British beer ad, Errol Morris refreshes the parts the others do not reach. That's Roger Eber, Chicago Sun-Times, talking about our old movie this week. It's a documentary I love. It's called Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. I encourage people to check it out. I have no idea where it's streaming. I think it's available. It might be on Amazon. I just love it so much. I looked it up on Amazon. I just bought it. 15 bucks. Came to my door the next day. Cranked it up. It was amazing. Uh, as far as our wild card, it's kind of a kind of a mix here. David Gran is the wild card. He is the author of Killers of the Flower Moon, which everyone knows I am counting down the days and hours until I get to see it. So David's going to join us, and he's unbelievable. So that then leaves the thought of what about a new movie this week? But the only new film in theaters is The Exorcist, which is getting crushed with its reviews. And I said, I'm not going to pay 17 bucks to go see The Exorcist. So to be honest with you, the only new I can really recommend to you is the best short movie out there. It is the TikTok video Francesca Scorsese did of her father, Marty, as she tries to test her dad on slang. Have you seen this yet, Cody? By the way, Chris Cody is back after I'm three back. week absence. He's going to go check it out along with the rest of you. It is incredible. So our new movie is a four minute short. Go look up on TikTok. You can Google it. Francesca Scorsese talks to her father about slang. For example, at one point she says eight. Do you know what the word eight means? He's like, eh. and she's like Lily Gladstone eight. He's like, oh, she, she's phenomenal in the movie. She's like, exactly. That's what eight means. All right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> so it, it, the, the fact that she started using it to him is amazing. At one point, she mentions can comedy. He's like, oh, that film was a bust. I mean, I love the film, but it, she goes, yeah, bam, that works. You got to check it out. It's fantastic. Francesca. By the way, can ahead. I just jump in and say first, I didn't know you could crank out a documentary. What do you mean? You said, you said that earlier that you had a you had a you watched crank, the documentary. Yeah, I watched it. I watched it. No, I, just I think I think know. you're using some sort of a sexual euphemism here. No, no, no. I'm like saying you're cranking like, one out. Is that what you're trying to say? No, no, no. You said I've never heard that yeah. used as a term to watching a documentary. Is all I, I cranked saying. out a documentary. Right? I mean, you crank in the view of anything, right? Cranked in a ball game. I cranked right. out. Whatever you want to use. No, I'm just right. caught up on that. I'm back. The good news Here is Cody is back. Three week absence. He was too busy with the NFL coverage, so we've we've switched now. We're recording this on Tuesday, so Cody will be a part of the action. I want to know first off, you just took a cruise because you messaged me. You go, hey, I'm going to be on a cruise this week, and I go, oh my god, we're going to lose you for the fourth straight week. And no, I'm back on Monday. Yeah. I'm like, wait, forty eight hour cruise because previously Alaskan cruise, unbelievable. You said you're going to retire one day in Victoria, so forty eight hour cruise, friends cruise. What is this all about? A three day, a three night cruise. Uh, it was just friends. My wife booked it. I know you're thinking these Cody's, they love their cruises. I don't yeah, always that's, go. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I don't always do cruises this frequently. It just kind of worked out that my parents had booked a cruise and this friend group was like, you want to go on a cruise? So it was no kids. So it was, not, I love my kid, but it was great. Of course. But where were you guys going? It was just uh, to, like the, the private Royal Caribbean Island, Coco Cay. Which is okay. fantastic. It's like a, a man-made heaven. Three <laughs> nights, man-made heaven. No well, children. Only one night. Only one day is there. The rest, of you're, you're like you're on the boat basically the whole time. Right. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, get the cruise, and that's good. I was just saying to you off air. I'm like, I'm curious with these with these podcasts because you haven't been a part of them. Do you just simply yeah. copy and paste? We said no. I listen to it. You clean it up a little bit. Make sure. Oh. So you've listened to me discussing JFK. You've yes. listened to me and Rags discussing Last Tango in Paris. I, I loved Rags. I love it. You're locked in even when you're not here. Uh, so you're aware then, because you were listening, the fact it's now been 50 days without my car. This was the Yankee sure. Stadium story. You remember this. Alex yes. Cora got me tickets. We started mm-hmm. driving, overheating. Okay. Right there, took the Uber. So it's been 50 been days, seven weeks. Yeah, it should be, hopefully, this week returning. But the good news is I've been reading a ton. So the good news is the writer's strike is officially over. Can't get any actors to, but writers, oh, my God. Like, by taking the train, 40-minute train from from Hocus to get to work, plus I take the shuttle. Like I just I just cranked it out. So like David yeah. Graham this week, Killers of the Flower Moon. The week after that, 
We have the author of a new book about Siskel and Ebert. Fantastic. Which is partly why I wanted to mention this Errol Morris documentary, because Ebert was a massive champion of Errol Morris and his documentaries. And then I read another book. Our guy we had on previously, I can't remember his name, Nat is his name. He has a new book about Scarface. So we've got three straight authors coming up. Like we, the writer strike is over. We're welcoming back writers We're with back. open arms here at the podcast. <laughs> and as I mentioned, without the car, I took the bus in New York City, and I'd seen there's a new Time magazine cover of Marty on it. And I went to every, and it was so ironic. It'd be like you going to see, like, uh, I guess you want like a Time magazine of Seth Rogen, and everywhere you're looking, it's Tua Tunga Bailoa. Because Jalen Hurts is on the cover. I'm like, oh my God, how is Jalen Hurts on the cover of Time? But it's Time 100. So I'm like, obviously, my favorite Eagles quarterback here. But I couldn't find the Marty issue. So this is why you guys are all the best. I said on the podcast, hey, can someone tell me how to get this issue? My man, John M., who's fantastic, he sent me a link. He goes, go to Etsy, E-T-S-Y. Here's a link. $13.99 for an issue of Time Magazine. $5 shipping and handling, but you'll get it. But just now, while coming home on the train, I look over my local stop here in Seacaucus, maybe get a snack. Sure enough, Time Magazine, The Magic of Martin Scorsese. Now, how much do you think a Time Magazine? I've already got one on the way now coming next week, thanks to Etsy. But how much do you think a copy of this cost? In the store. In the store. Uh, I'm going to probably be off on this. I can't remember the last time I bought a magazine. I'll say. Exactly. You and I have not I'll bought magazines in a long time. $9.99. Excellent guess. If we were in my home country, you'd be correct. $9.99 in Canada. In America, $8.99. Oh, okay. Now, I buy two copies. And really, the cashier goes, you want two copies, right? I go, buddy, if you knew who I was, you'd be surprised I'm not buying 10 copies. <laughs> like Martin Scorsese, I'm like, I have one copy, which I already ordered, and I just bought two more. Like, whatever. I might buy five more. I really don't know. Quite yeah. honestly, I just see Marty's face. I go, I'll take that. So <laughs> to read an excerpt or two from it, I've already read the article, to be clear, because last week when it was released, I just went to time.com, read the article. I want I want the, the print. I want the hard copy here, Marty. And uh, it's a really good article. Stephanie Zakarik, by the way, is an outstanding film critic for Time magazine. So I just want to read you a couple of excerpts here. Scorsese's encyclopedic knowledge of film has made him the patron saint of film bros. And though it's a title he most certainly never asked for, he's happy to talk about movies for as long as you like. But the stories he tells me during our three-hour interview about falling in love with Westerns as an asthmatic kid or about his Aunt Mary taking to a double bill of Bambi and Jacques Tourneur's great obsessive noir out of the past at age six are about so much more than movies. Even people who love movies often talk about them in a way that disconnects them from life. It's easier to jaw on about camera angles than it is to explain how a film speaks to our soul. Scorsese can articulate all of it. Out of the past, but it was a great Robert Mitchum film noir if you haven't seen it. It's hilarious. The guy is six years old. I mean, my son Shaz is six. I would not show him Out of the Past. Hysterical that his aunt was like, hey, here's Bambi and Out of the Past. Great little film noir. <laughs> Spending time with Scorsese, listening to his ideas unspool in stanzas that are somehow both operatic and streetwise colloquial, shot through his spirited digressions and invisible exclamation points is great fun, but you've got to pay attention. He talks fast and covers a lot of ground. Even his office decor speaks of a sensibility that can't be reduced to bite-sized quotes. Dozens of family photographs share space with vintage movie posters. There's one for Vincent Minnelli's juicy 1952 movie of his masterpiece, The Bad and the Beautiful Hanging Rape on His Desk. That is a great Kirk Douglas movie. You haven't checked it out. I'm sure it's available. I, I see it on TCM at least once a month. Great, great movie. And one more blurb here for you. Mention Scorsese's name. Everyone wants to talk about Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Raging Bull, or maybe even about the delightful cameos he makes in Francesca's TikTok videos. In one of them, she asks him to identify common feminine items. Among them, an eyelash curler and a beauty blender. Haven't seen that one, by the way. I love sure how she's to... just like, to like toying with the man. Yeah. The man is she, an she, old she, man. She was, she, yeah, my dad's just an old man. He's 80 years old. Doesn't understand <laughs> what's happening. I, mean, I just I do random crap with him. I should do that to my dad. It's true. I, <laughs> one would argue your dad already is being done that with the hard outs. Right. 
A sure way to clear on a dinner party is to bring up silence or Kundun, Scorsese's art 1997 film about the life of the Dalai Lama or heaven forbid, The Last Temptation of Christ, which drew ire upon its release. Those movies aren't just outliers in Scorsese's body of work and their questioning spirit. They may be foundational for everything else up to and including Killers of the Flower Moon, a picture that peers deeply and uncomfortably into the inhumanity of humans, knowing there's no valid way to ask the forgiveness of those who've been wronged. Great, great article. Make sure you check it out. Stephanie Zakarik, it's Time Magazine. So Laura Brandt, of course, is our guest booker. And I said, listen, whatever we can do to get an early screening of Killers of the Flower Moon, I said, I'll do it at camera. We're in touch with the folks at Apple. I said, whatever we can get, obviously, we're not going to get Marty. But if we can get Rodrigo Pareto, cinematographer, if we can get Ellen Lewis, casting director, Salma Schoonmaker, legendary editor. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. But at the very least, David Grant is going to join us today. He's the author of Killers of the Flower Moon. He's got some great stories, and he's a wonderful guy. What is not surprising to Cody or anybody else listening, so if I can't get to a screener, which, again, we're recording this October 10th. The movie's opening in 10 days. I will go naturally, as you know, when movies open Fridays, there's always a screening Thursday night. So I checked in my local theater Thursday. There's an IMAX at 3 p.m. and an IMAX at 730 p.m. So I said 3 p.m. Kids come home from school, although I'd like to be able to say I saw the first available screening. I'm not that insane. I'll just make sure the kids are set. We're going to sit her and my wife and I will go. My question to you is this. It's going to be opening night. There's nobody who loves Martin Scorsese more than me. It's been four years since his last film. If you'll recall, I saw The Irishman by myself at the initial screening. Marty, Pesci, Pacino, De Niro. So kind of Friday afternoon, I saw it. And then Sunday morning, I think it was actually the next day I took my wife. I saw it twice, definitely in the first three days. I want to see it back-to-back days. My plan is see it 7.30, Thursday night IMAX. Three and a half hour film. Three hours and 26 minutes. I'm going to go home that night. I won't be able to sleep. Friday morning, I'll get the kids to school. And I'm going to go watch the 9.30 a.m. screen. I'm going to watch it again. Twice, in, which is not surprising, right? You're like, of course. You what if you it hate it? There's no chance of that happening. <laughs> I want to say to you this as a happily married man whose wife is a lovely lady who I've had the pleasure of meeting. Is there any way I can say to my wife, I'd rather you join me for the second screening than the first screening. I'll explain to you why. When she goes to the movie, Cody, and you and I have discussed this, right? Your wife is on the phone. She's not paying attention. Then you pause and go, hey, how about that scene? Now, she loves subtitles. Thank God there will not be those during the movie, unless, of course, they're speaking in the Osage language. But she pulls the phone out. And I'm like, listen, I waited four years for this. If I'm watching this film and you put your phone and start checking Instagram videos, I'm going to lose my mind. That, doesn't she know that, though? I think so. But uh, is there a way that I can broach this without being like going and just going, hey, just like we're going to turn our phones off, right? And she well, just goes, well, what if the how, sitter calls? And I'm like, How does no. your wife feel in general about date nights? Like, because that, that is a, it's a totally different thing. Like her going to the movies with you at 930 in the morning, right? Like, right. I feel like this, I know, even though this is just a date that you have with Marty. Of so, course, let's be clear. It's not with that's her. That's why I know, right. like, I feel like your wife, I feel like she probably like knows you. So I feel yes. like in this circumstance, it's Marty. I feel like you could get away with this more than any other movie. Meaning if I say, hey, do you mind? I just want to see it by myself because yes. really I have a special kinship with this man. Or, and then tomorrow you know, I'll take you. You're going to see you, it opening day. Or you pivot to, I had this idea. Why don't we do like a, a morning date thing? We'll go to breakfast in a movie. Like dinner yeah. in a movie is played out. Yeah. Like how, or does, is she going to like, because my wife, if you want to bring my, uh, how, how it would go, how that would go in my family. Yeah. My wife would, rather like she would feel like oh you i'll just babysit your kid while you're while you're gone on friday night you know what i mean like whereas getting a babysitter doing it in the morning is i don't know if that's something that you deal with and you're you might not deal with that i think you're so i think this is the plan thursday night see it opening night but go you're right get a quick dinner at six 
And then in a polite, diplomatic manner, as you walk into the theater, go, we're going to turn off our phones, right? Just so we can lock in. Sit in nicer rather than, you're not going to be on your freaking phone, right? Like you always are. Then it's going to start a fight. So there's a polite way. Go, hey, that was such a great dinner, huh? My God, that was amazing. I'm so excited. Thanks for coming with me. You know how much I love this guy. You can turn your phone off, right? A packed theater is the most, one of the more insecure places to pull out the phone. Because like, I also was thinking that theater, if it's an empty theater, I can get away with it. If there's yes. someone right to her left, someone's gonna be shushing. Go, hey, are you yeah. serious? Like, come on. Yeah, and right. people going are gonna be people like me. These are the diehards. This is like, right. oh my god, like yes, yes. All right, I, we should. I be feel like you're good. I feel like your wife's gonna know. It's you and Marty. Like she can't be. Unless she's documenting your reaction, maybe. <laughs> no, she doesn't care that much. She's just gonna be looking at IG videos. Like, oh my god, what's going on with Bradley Cooper? Um, yeah. Speaking of. And this is where things are going to take a dark turn. And then we're going to get to David Grant. But I just saw this blurb and I, Amber Heard, who we all know the whole story, her and Johnny Depp, right? Very celebrated. I believe your wife was also interested in this as most mine. Yeah. I really don't care about these things, but they were both like very excited, you know, with all the details and the dirt, whatever. Like it's, you know, he said, she said, and I got all that. But the bottom line is this. Both these people took a hit. People look at Johnny Depp a certain way and people look at uh, at Amber Heard a certain way. And I just saw on Instagram, apparently, with regards to Aquaman 2, you know, there's some thought that one of those is going to take her out of the movie. And then Elon Musk, of all people, went went postal. This is the story I was reading. Apparently, he went nuts. And, no, you're not taking her out of the movie. Whatever happened to her and Johnny, like, blah, blah, blah. It's not it's not going to impact her moving forward. So, okay, interesting. Right. Interesting way of looking at things. So that right reminded me of some of the stuff happening with Johnny Depp. And it, it, it makes me think, like, Here's the exact story. Instead of Aquaman, Amber Heard is accusing. Yeah, this is also the other part of it. Elon Musk fought for, but this is the other part of it. On the set of Aquaman, Amber Heard is accusing Jason Momoa of being drunk on set Jeez. and harassing her dressed up as Johnny Depp. Jason said he wanted to be fired. Jason drunk, late on set, dressing like Johnny. Has all the rings, too. So think how bizarre that is. Momoa's like, oh, I'm going to, I don't know, just make your life miserable by pretending I'm Johnny Depp. From what are the, the chances Caribbean. he just dresses like Johnny Depp? Like <laughs> he he's just a similar style. Like like he looks like a guy that might have that style as well. That is also true. Uh, enjoy Aquaman, too. Let's get to our special guest right now, the author of Killers of the Flower Moon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
A real pleasure bringing in David Graham, the number one New York Times bestselling author and a staff writer at the New Yorker magazine, author of the critically acclaimed books, The Wager, The Lost City of Z, and Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a finalist for the National Book Award. We will talk about The Wager, which is his latest book, but I do really want to focus on Killers of the Flower Moon, as that movie is coming out in theaters shortly. If you don't know the backstory, real quick. In the 1920s, the richest people per capita in the world, members of the Osage Indian Nation in Oklahoma. After oil was discovered beneath their land, they rode in chauffeured automobiles, built mansions, and sent their children to stay in Europe. Then one by one, the Osage began to be killed off. The family of an Osage woman, Molly Burkhart, became a prime target. Her relatives were shot and poisoned just the beginning as more and more members of the tribe began to die under mysterious circumstances. It's an outstanding book. I don't know how David did it. Um, when you write something like this, narrative nonfiction as gripping as it is it's an amazing work and uh i think he's an amazing guy david grand joins us right now david good to uh, see you thank you it's such a pleasure to be on the program so first thought you know you're writing this book like I, i'm just curious that writing process as you're writing it you know you you know you've got a live one you know you've got something special here at what point in that process do you know i've definitely got something a movie studio would be interested in and does that at all influence what you write or how you decide to write i'm going to tell you uh, the truth about this, which is, I think, maybe a little surprising to people, is which is I never think about that. Um, because I think in a way it would corrupt the process of what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm so focused on just making sure I learn everything about the story. I tell it with words, not images, with words as vividly as possible and get to the truth. And I think if you do that, then there is a chance maybe it will be good enough and powerful enough that maybe some people in Hollywood or whatever may be interested in. But if yeah. you try to reverse engineer it, you're going to write, you're going to not do justice to the story because you're going to be thinking, oh, well, you know, this person needs to be like this or more heroic or more, and, and you'll and you end up corrupting the truth. And so I think I really try to wall it out also because you know, the connection between I've been incredibly blessed and fortunate that a lot of my work has now been adapted. Mm -hmm. um, but if you think that way, you know, it's still the chances of something be adapted are so small. So if you're writing a book for Hollywood, you know, you're, it's like fool's gold. I mean, it's not. So I really it, it's, it, you know, uh, and, and I hope I stay that way. You know, now things are being more made, but I really want to keep it focused on the story itself, because if you do that, well, then maybe someone will come. But if you do it the other way, it's never going to work out. <laughs> to your point, and I, I know you're being genuine, uh, Brian Helgeland, I interviewed who won an Oscar for adapting LA Confidential. And I said, I don't think I got through Elroy's book. I know it's a classic, but I said, it was just, there was just so much. And he goes, I said, how did you adapt that? And he, he said, kind of to your point, he goes, well, I just said, anything that focuses on the main three characters will be in the script. Otherwise, it's just extraneous to me. So, you know, anything focused on, on Spacey or Russell Crowe's character or Guy Pierce. So to your point, if you were writing that book, if you were James Elroy and going, well, in a movie, they'd have to have a composite of these characters and they wouldn't really have this throwaway scene. Like, you're right. It would completely impact the way you're writing the book then. And I'll also tell you something else that's kind of been surprising to me is most of the projects I work on, I actually think just the opposite. I think, why would Hollywood be interested in it? I mean, often these are very obscure stories or, or bits of history that are, are lesser known. Sometimes they deal with social injustices or, or whatnot. And so um, I'm always actually surprised and slightly bewildered when, when somebody comes somebody comes knocking. But I do think it is 
these stories themselves do have power. And I think that's really the secret of them. And if a story has a certain power and a certain resonance, um, I think it can be told in different mediums and I think it could be told in different forms. And so I think some of these stories are so powerful that someone like, you know, Martin Scorsese can, can see it and then interpret it and, and offer his own vision uh, and his own take uh, on the history. The book is sensational. And again, if you want to hear more about the the writing of it, the researching of it, my buddy Ryan Russell did a great interview with David. It came out about a month ago. So go look up Russell's pod and listen to it because this pod is cinephile. We will focus on the movie and specifically what David just mentioned, which is that Martin Scorsese directed it. I mean, you you can't get a better name than Martin Scorsese adapting your movie. So tell me what that phone call was like. Who called you? What happened? What was your reaction? Yeah. So um you know, I got a uh, call early on that um, that uh, Martin Scorsese's production was interested in the project, and you know, you 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 know, I'm like anybody else. I'm like a lot of your listeners. I'm just kind of a film buff who's a little bit in awe, and yeah, I'm just a little bit floored. I mean, I'll be honest, as an author, you are always a bit nervous when you work on a work of history, and the story of Killers of the Flower Moon is a serious story. You know, it's not a lark. I've done some stories that are kind of larks, search for the giant squid or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but this is this is a serious story. It's really about one of the more monstrous crimes, sinister conspiracies and racial injustice in American history. So, you know, to the point we talked about a little bit earlier, you're so concerned about getting the history right. And so the idea that someone's going to adapt it makes you a little nervous. Well, what's going to happen? And so the fact that one, the people of that caliber were interested just gives you such a, a level of comfort because you just know how good they are and how serious they are. And then I will say that the next piece of that was once they really got involved uh, to make the movie, you know, cause these things take forever. <laughs> you know, once they really, everybody was engaged, they had a script, they were getting ready, you know, working with Osage nation, they showed such a great uh, care uh, and dedication uh, to the story and to getting it right. Now it's going to be a different, it's going to be different. You know, I, I'm always, you know, authors sometimes are, you know, the movie needs to be an exact replica book. Well, that's so foolish because one, they're, they're completely different mediums. Um, and uh, I don't ever expect that, but with a story like this, you do want to make sure that it's faithful and gets to the deeper truths within a realm that it's going to be a movie. <laughs> Having said that, it is a dramatic change that they did. They're going to adapt the book and Leo's going to play Tom White and the, he's the lawman and the character. And as I'm reading, I'm like, OK, I'm De Niro's going to play the uncle. And then all of a sudden, no, no, uh, Leo wants to play Ernest. I'm like, wait, yes. what? Like he wants to play the nephew. Um, that's a pretty dramatic departure. Now, Eric Roth, I'm already going to reshape the screenplay. What's your reaction when you heard that? Did, did they let you know? Like, hey, what do you think about this idea? Yeah. So it's funny. I, I had never seen the first script. Um, and then um, and then DiCaprio actually called me to talk about that he wanted to do this thing. And I said, oh, absolutely. I would do that. Absolutely. Because to me, the character he plays was always one of, if not, you know, along with Molly Burkhart, who's the kind of heart and soul the, the, uh, of the of the book and uh, of the story. Um, Ernest Burkhart, who who marries Molly, is is in many ways the, the most interesting figure because, you know, while the lawman was a kind of noble figure, Ernest represented the nature of these crimes, which was this nature of complicity. And he's somebody who has a conscience who actually has genuine feelings for Molly Burkhart, um, the Osage woman whom he's married. And yet he is slowly 
tempted by the demons that exist in society and becomes complicit. And to understand the nature of these crimes, they were not about a singular kind of evil figure. You know, we often, we think about a crime, we like to think about, oh my gosh, okay, that's the serial killer, it's a psychopath. We catch the serial killer, we remove him from society, we can all feel better about ourselves, and we can also think, well, that person is another. That person is not like us. You know, when you read about, you know, some of these serial killers, you're like, and, and they're not, they're, they're psychopaths. <laughs> but when there are systemat systematic crimes, which is what Scorsese is telling in this story, um, they require complicity. They require people going along, lots of different people going along. And this is a story that required many people to go along. And so, Ernest represents that and he embodies that, those contradictions. And so it's such a fascinating role. I was concerned about the first script from, again, I never saw it because my book is told in three parts. And the first part focuses on Molly Burkhart, who's kind of the heart and soul, this Osage woman whose family is being targeted. The second part was about the FBI. And then the third part was about how the FBI actually didn't solve the case and how there was this much deeper and darker conspiracy. So if they were just, you know, as I've kind of read or heard, just focusing on the FBI part, they are going to miss the larger part of the story. So I think the decision they made, and they can only do, you know, as a movie, you can't do a whole sweeping history. The mm -hmm. fact they decided to focus in on this relationship, I was like, oh, yes, I would 100% do, do that. And I think one of the keys, again, Killers of Flowerman opening October 20th, uh, rave reviews at the Cannes Film Festival and at the premiere at New York City. Um, you know, the, the reviews coming in, they said, listen, Leo, never been better. Uh, Thelma Schoonmaker, Scorsese's long-term editor, said De Niro's incredible playing this villain. But a lot of focus on Lily Gladstone. And I'm checking yes. Golderby.com and saying, listen, you know how talented those guys are, but like you, you're going to walk away this week. Lily Gladstone is unbelievable. She's going to get nominated for an Oscar. She might win her and Emma Stone neck and neck right now in these Oscar Gold Derby odds. And I think it's really important. I've heard you speak about this. The fact that Scorsese was so clearly wanted to have the input of the Osage Nation. And it feels like Lily Gladstone is critical and essential to that process. So much so. She, everyone will know her name after this film. If you didn't before, I mean, she's a wonderful actress. But if she is remarkable. She is, you know, again, she's the heart and soul of the movie. She's the heart and soul of the history because she plays uh, of this story. She, she plays Molly Burkhardt. She does it with such dignity and force. She has the power. I think everyone will come with. She has the power of a silent actress. You know, mm -hmm. she does more with the expressions on her face. And again, I'm just a, 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 a viewer now. This is separate from an author. I just watched it. I've seen the film a few times. And yeah. I'm just always struck because it's such an alien thing for me as an author. You know, I never inhabit, the, you know, I, I'm writing about people on paper, you know, <laughs> and then to have to watch these actors actually embody these figures who you've come to know over half a decade researching them um, but she does it just uh, so remarkably well and to your point the most important thing that took place in this process and and you know and the only thing i really cared about when the film was adopted because i knew it would go terribly awry if this didn't happen you know when i worked on my book i spent half a decade and i spent a lot of time out in oklahoma and i developed these relationships and so many osage including many osage elders entrusted me with their stories and very painful stories in many cases and they show me the stories and you develop those relationships you develop those trust well the movie's coming in movie have often portrayed stories about native americans in horribly stereotypical ways including even this story going back to the fbi story um so 
they needed to establish those relationships. One of the things Chief uh, Jeff Standing Bear did, the Osage chief, was from the very beginning, he appointed um, uh, these ambassadors uh, from the nation to uh, communicate with the film production, to begin the process. And very early on, from everything I've been told from both sides, is, you know, Scorsese and the whole production team uh, work so closely. And when people see the film, they will see a film that is both Marty's vision and his creation and the actor's interpretation, but it will deeply and profoundly reflect the way the Osage have shaped the story, both the script, both, you know, the telling of it, the production of it, the sets, uh, the Osage language, which has been a a really important to the Osage nation to try to revive that language is spoken in the film. Um, I have been told that uh, De Niro speaks Osage really well. I've been told from several (laughs) of my friends that like he's kind of nailed it, which is really cool. Um, And then there are Osage actors in it. Um, And, you know, you know, I remember when I visited the set, you know, I'm walking down the, the street, which is incredible. They reconstructed everything. I mean, just everything down to the minute detail to um and uh, you know there are all these people i know and they're all in the film but there and then i watched a scene when i was there where there are um some of my friends uh they are um you know they have big speaking roles and does uh, to the best of my knowledge they were actors before you know one was a lawyer and so and and they are terrific they are absolutely terrific you know uh um you know, I heard a story. I, I think it's true. Um, I don't know. I never know what I'm supposed to allow to tell about film processes behind the scenes. But hell, I'll tell it anyways. I appreciate um, it. So, uh, um, you know, one of them had actually he told me that one of them had auditioned uh, when they were auditioning for the film. And he had taken all he had learned, you know, from his um his uh, ancestors, you know, his grandparents or whatnot, or the things he had heard from other elders about this history, about the story, about what he what they had lived through. And so he just kind of gave this this speech where he just channeled it all in the audition. And what he told me, and I, I think it's true, is, you know, Scorsese just said, oh, that's incredible so powerful let's just put that in the film and it is in the film it's one of the most powerful scenes <laughs> wow it's so cool it's what i always laugh when people say you know the writing is so good and it's true but with scorsese's movies like marty encourages that level of ad-libbing improvisation and it's not just cameras are rolling what do you want to do it's no they've, they've workshopped it they discussed it and then the magic comes out so it's it's an extension of what the writer is hoping to create yeah. And there are just, you know, there are just some moments, you know, it's interesting now because, you know, when we're talking, you know, you're talking about adaptation and this and what's in it, what's not, you know, how do they play it? What's true? What's not? What's interesting now is I've seen the film enough times now that I just watch it as a film. I watch yeah. it as a Martin Scorsese film now. And um, and each time I see something new, I mean, there are just some shots in this film that, again, this is me just as a viewer. They're just breathtaking. I mean, there is yeah. a scene in the film, and I'm not spoiling anything by saying this, you will see where there is a fire. And Scorsese has somehow recreated this image where you will see these figures like shadows kind of moving and contorting their frames by the fire in the distance. And it is a, a metaphorical and a literal creation of Dante's Inferno. I mean, it is just wow. so incredibly powerful. And there are just so many of those little touches that each time... I notice it and I won't give away, but like just even the two opening Id- images, including the music by Robbie yeah. uh, Roberts, the late now Roberts. Yeah. yeah. The late Robbie Robertson. I mean, it, it, it's breathtaking. And then there's a final image of the book uh, of the movie uh, that is also just so powerful because it, it, it basically, it's a contemporary scene and, and it's it just basically, again, I don't want to spoil things, but just, it, it, it reminds you that the Osage are still here. We, we, we're, they are still a vibrant nation. And even after all these crimes, we're still here. And I, I love that, that it ended on that, 
uh, on that image. And then there is another moment. Now I'm spoiling way too much. But no, no, you got me giddy, Grant. I can't wait to see this. Movie. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> I'm just excited about it. this. Is me just as a film book. I mean, now this is me just again because I'm separating it. Um, is uh, you know, there's a moment, and I I won't give too much away, but where where Scorsese breaks the fourth wall, and I, I'll let, I'll just let that you oh, know. Man. And at the end, he breaks the fourth wall. Shades of Goodfellas when Henry Hill turns the. Yeah, camera. it's really. It, but you know, it's the director. He's breaking the fourth wall, and it's really. I don't think I've ever seen him do this before. In a film so it's oh uh God, it's a it's wait. a remarkable touch oh i cannot wait october 20th killers of the flower moon in theaters uh david's making me giddy all over again um i do want to do a little bit on the wager because this is his yeah. latest book and, and i i haven't read it yet but i texted a friend of mine who loved it and i said just give me something he goes it's incredible here's he basically sent me random thoughts so i don't even know if there's yeah. a question yeah. here but he says if this is 1742 in a book, it feels like 1942. Somehow he went through the captain's logs and the detail and research is incredible. Recruiting cripples and men on deathbeds and basically kidnapping men off the street to fill the suicide crews is quite sad, but funny. He does let the reader make his own determination about whose story is most credible. The hardships and suffering on each ship, unimaginable. The rain, the snow, the scurvy, climbing a 100-foot mass in 75-mile-an-hour winds with boats sideways. If there were 200 men on each ship, five ships Ships and all, only a handful come back alive. You could be gone for years. That's insanity. That's insanity. Can I just say, can I get your friend? Because that was the best summation of my book. People always ask me what it's about. If I could just replicate that, I'd have it down. But that is exactly right. I mean, I always say this one thing about the wager, if you read it, that um, no matter what you're feeling in your life, you will feel you will feel better after you read what these what these poor, poor dudes went through. But yeah, no, it's an absolutely crazy story. Um, it's about these, um, you know, men, as you say, who get recruited on this uh, suicide mission, the secret mission to try to capture the Spanish galleon filled with treasure. Um, they don't have enough volunteers, so they basically go into retirement homes and start um, dra- dragooning, just basically abducting 60 and 70-year-old uh, soldiers and seamen in a retirement home, many of whom are wis- missing an assortment of limbs. Some have oh. to be lifted on stretchers onto the vessel. So you have all these characters, these, all these walks of life on this mission. They head out, they get scurvy, then they have to go around Cape Horn, um, which is at the tip of South America, which has some of the worst seas in the world. You know, so they're suddenly in these tidal waves that dwarf a 90-foot mast. You have people climbing the mast, holding on while these ships are rocking. And then that's before they eventually uh, shipwreck on this desolate island where they slowly descend into a real-life Lord of the Flies. And um, just to conclude the point, is like what's unbelievable what happens on the island. You know, there's mutiny and murder and cannibalism. Um but what really intrigued me about the story, and I think one of the reasons it fe- felt so relevant, re- uh, relevant today, is that some of the castaways, and it's hard to believe, they make it back to England. Some of them, they've been gone for six years. One was a 16-year-old boy who comes back, he's 22, and his sister can't recognize him. And they're suddenly summoned to face a court-martial for all their alleged crimes on the island. And so after waging this war against all the elements, they suddenly have to wage a war over the truth. And Joan Didion famously said, we all tell ourselves stories in order to live. But in their case, it is quite literally true, because if they don't tell a convincing tale, they are going to get hanged. And so they begin to battle over the truth and release their testimony. And so this was kind of going on when we're having our own wars over the truth today, right? We're all these battles and discerning. And then they have a battle over history. Who's going to get to tell the story? And the nation is kind of looking around saying, do we like any of these stories? They make us look like brutes, not like gentlemen. So they suddenly have an interest in telling a completely alternative version of history. Um, And so that really also the theme connected to Killers of the Flower Moon, because after Killers of the Flower Moon, I was so interested in how these 
crimes that took place were suddenly erased from memory and the larger collective conscious. And this weird case, this weird story in the 18th century is like a perfect parable illustrating how that happens. He's one of the texts he sent me. He said, I think he actually took a boat and crew and recreated the route around Cape Horn, which is insane. Couldn't he just watch Nat Geo? <laughs> That's what my wife says. <laughs> yeah, I took a wood heated boat. Not one of the smartest things I've ever done. Yeah, I took a wood heated boat, this tiny little <laughs> boat to get to uh, to get to Wager Island. And I'll just tell you this. Yeah. Wager Island is located in what today is known as the Gulf of Pain. That should have told me enough to not do that. <laughs> and I thought I was going to go in a big boat. And when I got out there, it turned out to be this tiny little boat. And it's literally, when I say it's wood heated, it's wood yeah. heated. It's wintertime. And we would chop, we would chop <laughs> on the little islands we would go to. And we would chop down wood. And then we'd put it in the fire to stay, stay warm. <laughs> and I didn't see another soul for you know, days, day, we didn't see another boat. I mean, it's completely desolate and barren out there. And at a certain point, we get into these rough seas near the Gulf of Pain. And um, I had to sit on the floor of the deck, you know, on the deck, because you can't stand. If you stand, you'd break your limb. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, I'm like on every seasick medicine known to humankind. I've got like things behind my ear, the patch. I've got the thing around the wrist. I'm on. I'm like half drunk on Dramamine. And then oh. I make that foolish mistake because I have to pass the time and I didn't know what to do. I had to just sit there for 10 hours a day. And so I was like, oh, well, I have Moby Dick on my iPhone. I just said Audible. So I put on a Moby Dick, one of the best novels ever. I can say never listen to Moby Dick when you're in a storm and you're about to puke. Just don't do it. Um, but we did get to Wager Island. Uh, I'll cut the story short. We did get to Wager Island. It remains this place of wild desolation, found virtually no food. But it was really important to go because after being there, I could finally understand why this British officer had said, it's a place where the soul of man dies in him. And I'm like, okay, I got it. I'm good. I can go back and write now. <laughs> when you first saw it, like, this is a little bit melodramatic. You're like, no, actually, this guy was bang on. There's nothing hyperbolic about this statement. That is exactly true. No, I was really wondering because I kept saying we could find no food. I'm like, oh, come on. It's an island. There's got to be something be like, no, around here. Yeah, there's nothing. That, you know, I mean, every sea tale is always embellished. I'm like, Actually, there's no food. I mean, you know, they, there was some they exhaust there were little snails or whatever uh, mussels along the edge where they exhausted, but there's no animals on the island. Nothing. I mean, there's some birds, but they couldn't get to them. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part is to be said, when I say wood heated, I mean wood heated. We literally <laughs> chopped the wood yeah, and yeah. had to heat it. That's it. Yeah. yeah, that was it. And then the other thing we had to do was uh, we would get our water from the glacial streams. And so we would hook up a hose, these tubes. We would get the cap, not me, the captain, who was lovely. They get up and they hook these tubes up into the mountains. And then they bring the from the glacial streams coming down and 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 into the. And then so you had a sh- you could shower on the boat with a little thing you would hold like a little nozzle but that was the water you shower with it was the coldest water i have ever i mean it was from a glacial stream i mean it, i it was literally freezing and so you would take like one second and i i think i only took a shower like twice during like the three weeks i was gone i mean i smelled horribly but i was always awake i would take that two seconds i'd be awake for the rest of the trip <laughs> david grid is a sensational writer and as you can now attest to do, tells an excellent anecdote as well what a storyteller i can't wait to read the wager and killer's the flower moon seriously do yourselves a favor you've got time go buy the book read the book and then watch the movie october 20th and then watch it again like i'm going to do and then watch it a third time like david's done because it sounds sensational i especially just love the fact you talk about how vivid the story is and and 
again on a serious note, like you said, it's it's a it's a tragic story. So I mean, it's 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 really something we should all learn more about and learn more about. So to credit to David for bringing this story to light. Honestly, I, I cannot wait for the movie, and uh, I can't thank enough for the time, man. This was awesome. Oh, it was my pleasure. Anytime. Oh, and I should say, you know, you never know with these things, but Scorsese and DiCaprio have optioned the rights to the wager, so we can keep our fingers crossed. If that, how I mean, I could not be more honored and privileged of what they've done with Killers of the Flower Moon. So when they expressed interest in the wager, I was like. Thank you. But again, I don't know. Marty at sea with Leo. I don't know. Like, who knows? <laughs> His asthma. I'm like, I'm not sure. Yeah. I better keep thing. I better not keep telling my stories about the Gulf of Pain because no one's going to make the movie. <laughs> don't jinx it. Thanks, David. This is All right, awesome. man. Take care. Bye. All right. All right. Thanks once again to David Grant, who was fantastic. I just want to talk because, like I said, we got the uh, author of the Siskel Ebert book coming up next week. I wanted to mention a little bit about Errol Morris. I'll talk to the uh, writer next week more about it. There's a really good story in there about how Errol Morris just, you know, it was, it's hard to be a documentarian who cuts through. But because Ebert championed him, his films end up getting a lot more play. And Fast Cheap and I Control is a documentary I love. It came out like 15 years ago. An exploration of the careers of four unrelated professionals a lion tamer, a robotics expert, a topiary gardener. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, by the way. It might be topiary. And a naked mole rat specialist. And I'm watching this documentary going, like, who the hell thinks of making a documentary about these four people? This line of work a gardener, a rat specialist, a robotics expert, and my favorite person is a lion tamer. And these guys are just fascinating documentary subjects. Dave Hoover is the animal trainer. Rodney Brooks is the robot scientist. George Mendonca is the gardener. And Raymond A. Mendez is a really quirky guy who's a mole rat specialist. But if you've never seen an Errol Morris documentary, I think it's an excellent introduction to what basically his movies are, which is like a kaleidoscope of emotions and images. And essentially what he's doing is it's a documentary, which is a tribute to the eccentric. Like think right now, you must have friends a little bit weird, a little bit quirky. And if you don't know them, then you're clearly that person. So Errol Morris is like, you know what? I'm going to find these people and I'm, I'm going to draw a web between the connectivity between these people. Like in what world would you say, hmm, I, I don't know anyone who's a lion tamer. Like what would make you go into that industry? Like perhaps Cody knows Ron McGill. Maybe McGill knows some people. And McGill will be like that. Okay, fine. But if you say, I know a lion tamer, how would that connect with a robotics expert? Literally, this guy dedicates himself to talking to robots, getting robots to talk and like a weird fetish, perhaps. <laughs> From Rocky Four, when the robot's talking to everybody. A gardener, this gardener only cuts out like animals. And like you see him, like all that, it's amazing. Slow motion, classical music. He's like, just, he likes cutting animals within the gardening. He's like, you're going to have to use these certain shears and stuff. I've dedicated my life to this. Like, I want to make this look like a giraffe. And he's just cutting leaves in a giraffe. I'm like, wow. And then the, the rat specialist is beyond bizarre. Like, at one point, he's talking about they eat their own feces and like they pee on each other and stuff. And like, he's, he's so excited when he's talking. He's so giddy. I'm like, this is just a bizarre guy. And yet it's amazing because it's Errol Morris. He finds, as I said, the connective tissue between these people. And he makes you appreciate those who most people would look at as just strange and weird and outcast and saying, hmm, I may not be the kind of guy I want to hang with on a Friday night, but I respect the fact they're passionate about these subjects and they see artistry in the world where normally most of us would not see any art. You would just see a naked mole rat peeing on somebody. So it's a really cool documentary. Again, the way he shoots it, very famously, Errol Morris has the Interotron. He made up that device. Basically, you can talk. Basically, he's talking to Errol Morris. And he's looking right in the camera. Like, you know, for years, documentaries in a certain way, like, you know, they're kind of off camera and stuff. But this way, he's like, I want to be able to lock eyes with the subject. 
right? If you're looking at a camera, but the subject's right. over here, you're not looking at the person talking to you. So he d did this device called the Interotron. So if you're looking at the camera, you can still see Errol Morris's eyes. When he's talking to you, asking the questions, you're having a real conversation. It's amazing. Like that, that device is now used in documentaries all the time. Fast, cheap, and out of control. It's cool. It's quirky. I encourage you to check it out. Some more blurbs for you. Jason Bailey advice. Fast, cheap is about nothing less than our grand experiment. The struggle not only to be human, but to create order in a world bereft of it and widget walls. The only trouble with this documentary is not in telling people what it's about, but rather trying to figure out if there's anything that's not about because it is rather quirky and eccentric. Once again, check out Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. Once again, thanks to David Graham, the author of Killers of the Flower Moon. Let's keep our fingers crossed as far as trying to get some of the people involved with Killers of the Flower Moon. Again, I mentioned the cinematographer, Rodrigo Pareto, casting director, Ellen Lewis, the production designer we've been asked out for. So hopefully in the next week that'll happen. But if not, this is the first of three straight authors. David Grand, next week, Siskel Lieber, the week after that, Scarface, Halloween Stories, Cody's back. We're locked in right now. So back, thanks, baby. as always, to supporting Cinephile. And a welcome back to Chris. Any closing thoughts, Cody? You're back. happy to be back here on Cinephile? Yeah. I mean, not enough of me. Next time I'm interviewing David Grand. Okay. I can't wait. I uh, look forward to that. I, I, I am excited for Killers of the Flower Moon, though. Legitimately, oh, I I'm going to see it. I know I've done this before and failed. I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to, when we review it, I assume we're reviewing it next week. Correct. I'll be the week after because I'll be, unless I get a screener. If I get a screener, I'll be watching it. So you get right. Oh, no, that's right. Two weeks from now. Yeah. yeah. Whenever it is. I'm We're going to watch it October 20th. It's going to be out the episode October 23rd. I'm going to look up tickets right now. I'm going to have a date night with my. I'm going to do a breakfast thing with my wife. A breakfast <laughs> in a movie. 9 30 a.m. show. The Cody's getting after it. I'll see you at the movies. I'm going to crank it out. <laughs>